This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, trusted natural solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran-owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code Mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncanna.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Robert, how are you? Good, man. How are you doing? Good. It's good to see you. Yeah, likewise. You. Likewise. So, everything been uh, well with you? Yeah, no complaints here. Uh, you know, healthy, happy, and strong. Yeah, good. Uh, just, just Good deal. Just moving it along. How about yourself? Yeah, doing the same. Family's doing well, so can't complain, you know. And if you do, you've got to find somebody that actually gives a shit and cares. No, nobody does. Nobody <laughs> does. Unless you're complaining. I don't know. Unless you're complaining to the right person who does just wants to complain with you. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can find, you can find people today to complain to if you want. That's oh, for sure. Oh, most definitely. And they'll complain. <laughs> yeah, they'll complain right back. Uh, <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, I can't wait to dive into this because there's just so much here actually to unpack and uh, started reading over, you know, your bio and everything else. And we're going to get into the full bit of it. Uh, but first off, welcome to the Mentors for Military podcast, Errol. Man, it's good to have you on. Well, it's good to be here. And I, I'm super appreciative to be here. Um, you know, this is these are important podcasts. I, I, I just started to kind of get on a couple of them like this and uh you know, anytime you can add value to uh, to military folks, that's what I'm looking to do. So, you know, a long time ago, I struggled with coming up with a name for the show. Um, me and Rudy Lindsay were the guys who actually started brainstorming about the podcast, and we talked about how officers and NCOs one of the best things that we do, or at least good um, leaders, is mentor. So that's yep. how this whole thing came about. But you know, it's uh, it goes a little bit. Into mentoring is more about listening to paying attention to, you know, there's a message there. There's something you can take away. There's something that you can maybe take an action on or do something about to change your lifestyle or somebody near you and, and help others. And that's really what it's all about, right? You know, when it comes back to trying to give back to our community. That, that is what it's all about. You know, that's why this is not a cheap plug for my book, but that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because uh, I got into uh, after I left this military. I went to the FBI, I left the FBI and I just felt like I had some information to give. And I, I put it together in a way that I think everybody can, it will apply to everybody. And that's what it's about. Just giving back a little mentoring. And, you know, that's what I do for a living now. I, I'm a leadership consultant. And what's, what's great is I work with people who want to get better. So it's usually a real good experience and then to be able to share some of those lessons. And like you said, let people figure it out on their own. They just need somebody to guide them to figure out what they want on their own or what they're missing, right? They don't know. They can't always see it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I'm enjoying it all right now for sure. Yep. 
so Brightwater's New York. Where is that? Uh, that that is in Long Island, Long Island, New York, on okay. the South Shore. It's, it's a little village inside of a town called Bayshore. And if you're familiar with New York, that's where you get the uh, the ferry to Fire Island. So, oh, you know, okay. I grew up on, yeah, I grew up on the water, uh, right there. Yeah. All right. So while you were growing up on the water, what was it that led you to go into the military? You know, was it because you liked the water or especially the Navy, of course? But I mean, you know, what was it? Was it family members or something like that? Yeah, it, it wasn't really. We've got I've got some family. I didn't have what you would call a military family. There was members in my family who were in the military. Sure. But it wasn't like a military family. You know, it wasn't yeah. like, hey, Earl, you're going to join the military like everybody else. You know, my dad was, you know, he was in, he enlisted or he got drafted after Korea you know, for a couple of years, you know, my uncle was in Vietnam, but it just wasn't this thing. So there was nothing really that drew me to the military with the exception of my neighbors were a Naval Academy family. When I was young, they bought over a pamphlet of the Naval Academy. I have no idea why they bought it over. And it was interesting. I, you know, I couldn't have been more than sixth or seventh grade. And, you know, I got a little enamored by it, but then I saw this section on this thing called the seals and it was a paragraph now back then in the early 80s there's nothing it's not like today you didn't even know i went to the library i found an equally short article a paragraph on what they were um and that just kind of stuck with me and then when it was time you know in high school i played athletics and when it was time to pick a college you know i was kind of late to the game and i told my lacrosse coach i played lacrosse you know, I said, I don't really know where I'm going to go. And he said, well, where do you want to go? And the Naval Academy popped into my head. I hadn't given it any thought since that time. And then once I got to the Naval Academy, um, you know, I remembered and I, I was reinvigorated with my obsession for being a SEAL. So that's that's kind of how it started. Just All right. So you go fairly, in fairly random. So you go about maybe looking at the Naval Academy a little bit more seriously now when you're in high school. And um, so what was it that attracted you? Is it a memory that went back to that day or was it still something else that was beyond that? No, I, I think it was just a memory that went back to that day. Okay. I, I, honest to gosh, because there was there could have been a million places you know I, I was a lacrosse player and i played football now i wasn't big enough to play real division one football but i could have played a division three school somewhere and there were plenty of good schools sure um but lacrosse was kind of my sport and there was always the syracuses the hopkins and things like that but but just as i thought about it in that moment i it all kind of came flashing back to me that oh the seal team thing and the military and the naval academy that looked pretty cool that's all it was it I wish it was more. I wish I could tell you it was this burning passion <laughs> yeah. to serve my country and go to the military. But it was like Naval Academy's got a pretty good lacrosse school, and I think it's a pretty good school. And there's this thing about seals, and I'm not sure what that is, but that sounded cool. So you know, I, I wish I could give you a uh, a more mature and inspiring answer but that's what an 18 year old is thinking no i mean we've had we've had uh, past guests that uh went on to become seals and it was a movie you know that did it all for him so you know it (laughs) it could be anything you know really when you think about it so 1991 is when you graduated but you didn't have kind of your i guess atypical normal um you know you had a little bit of rough edges that kind of happened there throughout the academy tell me about that I did. You know, I was 
for somebody who went to the Naval Academy under, and I understood what the military was. I wasn't, you know, sure. I wasn't an idiot for God's sakes. Yeah. I mean, and I went to the prep school first, the Naval Academy prep school first. So you get real, that's a real good indoctrination into the, you know, into the service. Um, so for somebody who did enjoy the discipline and camaraderie of the military, I, I tended to go against the grain and, you know, there, there could be a million reasons for that explanation, but it just, it was something I did. And so I ran into some problems. I was what's called head restrictee twice at the Naval Academy. That means you have the most demerits based on the trouble you just got in. And it's kind of a backward system. So you, the, the person who gets into the most trouble is there the longest. So they're in charge of all the other troublemakers. So I was in charge of all the other troublemakers <laughs> a couple of times. It's a very a real system. leader of troublemakers. I love it. <laughs> it all started right there. <laughs> it all started right there. You know, so um, that was weird. And, you know, at best, I, the Naval Academy is an excellent academic institution. Yeah. And at best, I was a lazy student. And so, you know, I found myself just doing enough to get by. I found myself going to a couple of academic review boards. And, you know, the reason I don't, I'm not, I'm not proud of it or ashamed of it. I'm not either. It's just what happened. But I, I do, I do bring that up a lot because, you know, I was saved a couple of times for performance, uh, for academics. And I was saved because there was always at least one person who said, hold on a second. Er Errol's a good kid. He's going to be an excellent leader. He's just a little immature. He, we just need to move him along a little bit. He'll, he, he corrects the mistakes that he makes, right? He's, we haven't hit him the same time for the same thing. Well, that's you good. Know, yeah. Right? <laughs> He's figured out. He learns. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I just, I just always appreciate that. Yeah. And, um, and I always just, you know, and somebody asked me recently, well, can you remember any of those people? And, and I can't. And it's not because. I'm not appreciative. It was it was a long time ago. Yeah, and it, people move on, and and that's the role we talk about mentors, even those little tiny things, right? Saying I believe in this person, I'm going to put my neck out for him, put a good word in for him, and now I'm going to trust you to do the right thing to not make me look bad. If that's the only interaction you have with somebody, that's a life lesson. Yeah, and that's that's mentorship, right? Nobody told me, hey, do A, B, C, and D, and I'll help you out. It was just, no, I've been watching. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I made it a little harder for myself than I needed to. And, but that all went into part of my leadership philosophy that I try to share with everybody. You know, why did I make those mistakes? Why did I unnecessarily go against the grain when I didn't need to? And there's a reason behind all of it. But yeah, so that was, that was my time at the Naval Academy. Well, you end up graduating. So 1991. Yeah. So how did you end up going to becoming a, a Naval Surface Warfare Officer then? Uh, was that's that by right. choice, or is that something that they just said, "Hey, you're the you're one of the trouble guys, and here's the opportunity"? Punishment. <laughs> no, I wanted to be. So they don't have. It wasn't by choice. I picked it, but that wasn't my first pick. My first pick was to go into the SEAL teams, but they have a limited number of billets uh, for the SEALs, and they had only eight or nine that year. Oh, that's and low. They, yeah, yeah, and they ended up um, they ended up going by class rank. They initially had a formula for the PT test, the interview, and some other thing, and then sure. class rank. So I'm like, I, I think I have a chance. Yeah. Um, but then when they went 100% at the last minute to class rank, I was like, well, I don't have a chance. <laughs> yeah. Now, it turns out that, let's just say I can't remember. Let's say they had eight billets. I was number nine. 
And we went around to me and a couple other guys went around to the other guys who wanted to have it and like just convincing him, look, this yeah. isn't for you and you're not committed. <laughs> a couple of them did drop out. A couple of them like, get the F out of here, man. I'm, I'm right. taking the billet. So anyway, I had to, then I had to pick. There's, so they have this big board up there in service selection night. And I, I'm just sitting there distraught, right? There's hardly anything up there. I've got to pick a ship. And like we talk about, one of these mentors comes over to me. He was a captain in 06. And I took, he was a celestial navigation instructor. I'll never forget it. And in any event, he came up to me and he said, you know, what's, what's wrong? And I said, what's wrong? Look at the board. You know, he says, oh, you wanted to be a SEAL. And, you know, the whole thing. Sure. He's like, okay, well, are you still going to try to go for it? And I said, yeah, of course I am, but I don't know what to do. He goes, pick that ship. And he points at the USS Monongahela. It's an oiler. And I said, okay, why? He goes, because that ship is out to sea all the time. And I was like, sir, maybe you didn't hear me. <laughs> but I don't want to be on a ship, and I don't want to be out to sea. And he said, you've got it all wrong, son. He goes, what you want to do is be out to sea all the time so you can get your surface warfare qualifications faster than any of your competition. And when you put in that package to laterally transfer, along with the 40 other guys who are going to do it, you need something to stand out. And that was it. The speed in which wow. I got my surface warfare qualifications was the only thing that had me stand out. Um, and, and I got the one billet uh, that year for the lateral transfers. And again, it was because of, you know, that captain telling me to pick that ship and really just get in my mind right now. Some of the same troubles followed me in the surface Navy, you know, uh, still you can't break habit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Right you, it's a gradual process. Right. So some of the, you know, some of the less than uh, officerly behaviors that they expect of you, I was still trying to work my way out of. But. I made it, and then I was eventually given the bill to uh, Butts. Yeah, so how many years was it then that you end up spending to that before you end up applying again for SEAL? So it was, I was only on that ship for two years. I was only in the surface Navy for two years. So I, I the first time I applied, I got it. And then it was like, once you get it, it's like six months I had to wait. And then, you know, so the day I went off to, you know, the ship, my orders and I just drove right to Coronado. So okay, yeah, it was it was pretty it was relatively quick. It seemed like a lifetime, you know, being on the ship. But that was a great experience too. And I I haven't spoken enough about my time on the ship, and I've just started now talking about um, kind of the the necessity for great leadership in mundane environments mm. because that's important because it's not always going to be mundane and are you ready when it's not and I, I you know we got into a ship uh, collision out at sea and I was you know I was on the bridge for that and you know you had to start doing things correctly in that in that environment but that's really not what the surface warfare environment is about it's pretty mundane right it's a drag it's a it's a slog but um, in any event I, I learned a lot of great lessons on on the uh, ship. And, uh, you know, I'm going to start talking about them a little more. Most people like to hear about the Navy SEAL stuff and the FBI stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's getting time to start transitioning a little bit of the discussion. Yeah, well, I'm appropriate. 
No, oh yeah, but I think that uh, you bring up a valid point. I think so many people focus so heavily, especially these days, on the soft community, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think there's a lot to be gained, and there are a lot more people that are actually, you know, in more supporting uh, roles or roles that are providing, um, you know, service to their military branch and and mil- within their military occupational specialty that may never go into the special operations community. You know, thinking back, I can see that you're already. Your brain's working on, wow, I can I can tell some valuable lessons and valuable stories that came out of those life experiences, you know, during yeah, that time frame. Absolutely, you know, and you're right, you know, so and I, I like I like that, the, you know, the special operations community is getting some play because we do have a lot of good things to offer. Yeah, sure. To to the business world. But but to your point, so do the other branches. Right. So do the so do the more mundane branches of the service. Because if you're not at a minimum, my lesson was, and there's more than it, more than this, but at a minimum, my lesson was, if you do the things that you don't want to do correctly, good things will come to you, mm-hmm. right? I don't really want to be here. I am not excited about being here. But that's not the point. The point is to bring my best to this scenario. And if I bring my best to this scenario, something good will happen on the way. Absolutely guaranteed because I didn't want to stay there. I had another vision and I was because of that mentor. I was able to say to myself, do everything you can now do it right, correctly, right here, right now. And later you will be rewarded for this and you'll be a better leader for it. And I was. And, And yeah, and there's a lot there's a lot to that. Well, you had a future motivation. You had a passion that you were shooting for. It wasn't the here and now. But like you said, every step that you make, I guess it's sort of like a a coach that um, coaches college football or coaches football. You know, what you put on film is what matters. And so in your case, that was the same advice that that mentor was giving you at that time frame. Listen, put something good on film. Do your absolute best. Every time you're being asked to do something out there as an effective leader, it's going to get noticed. And if that's what your end game is, if that's really what your goal is, then you're building your resume towards that. Somebody's going to be paying attention along the way. And even if you don't achieve that goal, that end state, maybe something happens to you in your career, you get hurt, you get injured, you know, you've built a resume, you've learned a lot to where you're still going to be a valuable asset, if not within the military, continuing on in your service certainly outside people are going to continue recognizing the value that you provided your organization it's going to that's, stand out that's that's exactly right so when i went to my commanding officer on the ship at some point i had to go to my command and let them know what my intentions were now yeah. you i got a lot of i got a lot of different advice on that a lot of people are like don't do it the surface warfare community they're backstabbers they'll make sure you don't get it and a couple people you know were like uh, you should just tell them. I mean, let's just be honest. And that's kind of where I was, right? I was like, well, I'm just going to be honest because at some point I'm going to have to put this paperwork in. They have to sign it. Why don't I just tell them? And so I tried to, you know, I tried to work hard, you know, make it make a name for myself at a minimum as a hard worker. And then when the day came that I came, went to my commanding officer and I told him what I wanted, his response was, I thought there might be something driving you. And he goes, you absolutely have my support for this because I want to help anybody who wants to stay in the Navy. And you've done a good job here. That was the that, that was his last sentence. Yep. And you've done a good job here. If I was a, a piece of garbage, 
he wouldn't have said, yes, I'll support you staying in the Navy because you're just a piece of garbage, right? That, the tours on that ship aren't that long, right? He, would have, he could have been rid of me soon enough as it was. Um, so that was it, right? And you've done a good job here. And that's all that matters. You know, I, I can tell that same story when I went into the civilian world after I uh, left the SEAL teams. I got injured. Um, I sold copiers, right? That's not the most glamorous job, but I liked it because of there was good leadership there, but I did a good job. And then when it was time to get one of those sexy sales jobs, right, I could say, well, yeah, I've, I sell copiers. Look at all these copiers I sold. Like, man, if you could sell copiers, you could definitely sell this stuff. Right? So, <laughs> so then you get a better job, right? That's just the way it works. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you also had a leader there that does something that I feel is more important as well, and that is to recognize that not everybody's going to want to continue doing what you have passion about. And it's not about you in those days. You know, at any given time, for that matter, you should be looking out for the welfare of your people. That's part of the leadership leadership definition that we learned within the military, but too many forget that fact, you know, and they, they would think, oh, okay, you're wanting to leave me. You're wanting to leave us. Well, guy, it ain't about you. It's about me, you know? So, you know, it, it should be, you know what? Hey, you have done a good job. I'm going to support you hundred percent because as long as you're staying with us, that's what's more important. And the same thing, like you said, within the private uh, sector, so many times I had subordinates that I would give coaching to more guidance to that I would say, listen, this is our one-on-one -on -one opportunity. This is your time to tell me, do you want to stay within this, this environment, within this team and everything else? Because it's okay if you don't. I just need to know where your head's at. What is it that you're truly passionate about so I can help you achieve that? Mm -hmm. Not yeah. all leaders really do that, but they should. Because well, then that means you're, they should. yeah, they're really looking out for the welfare of the people that they're doing that. And it, it's and not everybody does do that. I, I will tell you this on some of those. The so I was a division officer on the ship, right? And that's you know just the lowest level officer. Um, and some of the company officers, they they didn't dig me, right? They knew that I wanted to do something different. And had the leader, had the commanding officer of the ship, not given me his support, I think that they probably would have done what they could to hold me back. But that that's the point that we're making great leadership is is a downward it trickles down okay it does it cascades down it doesn't trickle down it cascades down so when those couple of the the company officers who didn't really like me too much for whatever reason i didn't do anything to them but when they knew that the commanding officer supported me all of a sudden they were on my team right mm -hmm. they didn't stay neutral okay they could have but they didn't they said all right i guess we're, we're here to support them I'm going to help this kid out as much as I can, even though for some reason I don't like him. Um, so I will give them credit for following the lead. I give the commanding officer more of the credit for saying, hey, everybody, we're supporting him. Yeah, get on board. And then they got on board. They didn't have to. Yeah. They did, though. So, But they could have gone either way. But um, I, I'm not really sure what point I was making other than, you know, from a leadership standpoint, from a mentor standpoint, the leader will set the tone. Yeah, because yeah. they there's no way that they were going to do anything worse than be neutral towards me because the leader made it clear we support our people and he's doing a good enough job. He deserves it. So off it went. It was good. So when you went off to um, SEAL training and everything, you get done with all of that, you end up getting assigned to a team. Which team did you end up getting assigned to? I was at SEAL Team 4 uh, first, which 
runs uh, South and Central America. And then I went over right away to SEAL Team 1, uh, which, you know, we, we had a Middle East deployment at the time. But that's where I got injured and ended up getting medically discharged. So I was at 4 and 1. And then I had actually, on deployment with SEAL Team 1, we had stopped in Hawaii, and I had already had my next set of orders set for SDV-1 um, to be a platoon commander there. And then I was going to, you know, um, then I was going to try to screen for a dev group, but not to be. Yeah, yeah. What what happened, What if you don't mind me asking, what no, was the injury? No, of course yeah. not. Yeah. And how did it occur? Case. So we were this, now, mind you, this is the late 90s, so there's not a lot of work going around yeah. for anybody. There's no real sustained war effort. Um, so, you know, we did a lot of training, but we went out on deployment. We actually got tasked for a real operation. We were going to do a ship takedown. And, um, you know, wherever that ship was going, it was going to a country we decided that it can't go to with cargo that we decided was illegal, right? So we were going to take that ship down and get control of it. So we obviously had to do the rehearsals. So the day before, we're doing the rehearsal, and the weather was real bad that day. The sea was mighty that day, my friend. And you know, when you're in, <laughs> when you're in that position that I was on a ship, you've got many different bosses. You've got the commanding officer of the ship. You've got the commanding officer of the battle group. I've got the commanding officer of the task unit for the SEAL teams. I've got my commanding officer of my actual SEAL team. But, right, so you're answering to a, literally a million different people. It's sure. unbelievable. So the commanding officer of the ship wasn't going to let us launch our boats for the rehearsal because it was it was too, uh, you know, it was, it was bad, bad seas. And I said, no problem. I said, but if the, if, if, the, if the weather's like this tomorrow, are you going to make us go on the op? He, he said, yeah. I said, well, then you've got to let us rehearse. That's that's ridiculous because I won't go on the op. Yeah. If you know what I mean? That's, and what any good leader say, you cannot let us operate in this without us testing it out first. So he was good. He, he said, you're right. And, you know, long story short, um, it was a, you know, a, a ship, a ship boarding. You know, it's when you throw the big caving ladder up, you know, 30 feet and everybody climbs up the, the caving ladder. Well, I was on top of the caving ladder ready to pull myself over. We're at the bottom. The seal who was holding it got thrown because the wave was so big. Mm. He dropped the ladder and the caving ladder caught on a cleat at the top of the wave. So then when it came down, it was stuck and just exploded the caving ladder. So I came falling down. Um, and that was a, I'll, I'll sidetrack cause it's a fairly interesting story. You know, I, I'm literally 30 feet up. Now I'm going down a couple things go through your head. Right. And the first thing is if we're talking about leadership here, um, and it's weird, but I'm, I'm a little proud of the fact that my first thought was go out like a leader, go out like a man, don't go out screaming and kicking. Tell, have everybody tell a good story. Errol went out like a man. He went out like a leader. Now, that's a weird thing to be thinking, but it's probably what saved my life because I was super calm on the way down. The other thing that happens is there is a flash before you. Like, you know, yeah. oh, oh boy, this is it, isn't it? Because uh, there's no way I thought I was going to survive, and I'll tell you why in a second. But I remember thinking to myself, hey, good life. You know what? You made a lot of mistakes, but you always went for it good passion, good life, be proud, right? That was comforting. You know, I wasn't like, yeah. oh man, I didn't try it. You know, so then I, what I was sure was gonna happen was that I was gonna fall in between the two boats. 
And once you fall in the water in between the two boats, I would immediately get sucked into the screws of the big cargo uh, boat that we were taking down. That's just the way it goes. You fall in, you're going to get sucked in, and I was going to be fish food. And I was like, man, I just hope this happens fast because this is this is going to be bad. Um, so what turns out is I land on our boat, you know, our rib, and I hit the one area that is not an antenna or something sticking up that's going to impale me. It's the the cover for the engine, but my my arm is hanging over the side. So when I hit, I get thrown back up in the air, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm alive. Like I. Oh, Oh my God, I, I have a chance here. And I notice my arm is is dangling in the air. So I'm like, all right, if I go in the water, if I go in between the two boats, I'm still getting sucked back under. That's a that's a done deal. But if I go in the water on the other side, make sure don't try to stay alive swimming because your arm is broken. It's not gonna work. You know, so die trying to find your CO2 cartridge for your life vest. So I was ready. You didn't talk about training kicking in. I was ready. That, Damn, that we're talking seconds. milliseconds, yeah. All right. Bam, I'm alive. Don't do this. You know, the whole thing. Yeah. I landed back in the boat. I was the last one. There was like, you know, an 18-year-old kid, poor kid driving the boat. And, you know, one of the other guys in my platoon, and he was like 18. And they were just staring at me. <laughs> I couldn't even believe what they saw. So I see, you know, blood starting to squirt out of my arm. I'm like, oh, my God, that's an artery. I'm like, hey, one of you guys, had, you know, a, what do you call it, a cravat, a bandage? You're right. Like, I'm expecting a little help. You know, like they throw it at me, it hits me in the head, and I've got to do it myself. Get so, out of here. <laughs> poor guys. Anyway, that's the story. That's how I got hurt. Uh, so there was a, you know, I had had another fall pre- previous to that and this one. So I had some head injuries going on and, and the arm and the loss of use of my hand. I'm okay now. That's good. But I just wasn't yeah. sure. Nobody was sure what the, what the recovery time was going to be. So when it came time to make a decision, you know, I was going to be on the sidelines. I could have probably stayed in and done some admin work, you know, um, helped out with the cause. I just, I didn't think I would, that's where I'd be given my best effort. Mm-hmm. So I, I took the discharge and, you know, on I went. Yeah. So when you took the discharge, was it right away that you ended up going into the FBI or was that something that occurred much later? No, it was much later. So, well, not much later. It was about, it was about three, three and a half years later. Okay. Um, so, so I went into the private sector, right? I, I got a job um, in sales, like I said. Selling oh yeah, copy. that's right, selling the copy. Yeah, yeah. and I was ha- I was fine. I was having fun. You know, life was good. You know, I was adjusting to you know the whole thing. I missed being a seal, but you know, a lot of self reflection and stuff like that, and you know, having to move forward. And then um, I was after I was done selling the copiers, right? You did a good job. I got promoted at that time. Selling software was the big thing, right? So I got a job selling software. One of my friends was a boss at another company. He recruited me and, uh, I had gotten this big deal all set up and I was going to make a name for myself in this software company. And I had a meeting with, uh, you know, my new, my new boss was with me and this was it. It was going to be a couple million dollar deal. And I was off to the races and that date was September 11th, 2001, and the location of the meeting was Manhattan. And wow. so, yeah, so we were, um, and I make it very clear not to make this dramatic. I was safe, but I was downtown at the time. So I was about two blocks north of where the rubble ended, right? So everything happened, there's rubble, and then a couple blocks north is where I was. 
And Were you, you could know, you see I, could you see down towards that and the yeah, smoke coming your way? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One hundred percent. As a matter of fact, when the first plane hit, I was in Starbucks and somebody came running in and like this is just crazy how people think, like, oh a helicopter just ran into the World Trade Center. So a bunch of us got out, you know, went out of Starbucks, looked literally down the street and like, oh, man, that's too bad. I hope everybody's OK. But New York being New York, you just kind of start moving on. Yeah. Like, ah, that sucks. And then, you know, the reality of what was happening settled in. And, you know, I my brother-in-law uh, worked in the World Trade Center. And once I realized that, I called my sister and she said, no, he went in this morning. He'd actually quit that job a few days beforehand. He went in to get his final paycheck and oh. say goodbye to some of his friends. Jeez. So I ran uptown, uh, found my sister, and we went around to the hospitals uh, like everybody else who lost somebody that day. He, you know, turns out he died. Uh, and, you know, that was just, you know, that was the day where I woke up again and said, okay, I've got to get back in this fight. So I got myself medically cleared, put my application into the usual suspects, and then ended up going with the FBI and the rest is history. And then I got assigned, you know, New York City counterterrorism. Uh, and I reported there uh, December of 2003. And, you know, then I, I was back in the fight, you know, ready to ready to get after him. Ah, so sorry to hear that. Earl. Yeah, it's, oh, I appreciate it. It's, a, it's, you know, it's but everybody's got their 9-11 story and that's and that's mine. And then that's how it changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. It, yeah. So when you were in the FBI counterintelligence and stuff at that time frame, what was some of the biggest stuff that you guys were, what was the focus? I mean, it was a very heightened uh, period, you know, yeah. and everybody was wondering what was going to be next. Mm -hmm. It was a great time. So I was, so it's, it's semantics, but it matters at least in the, in the FBI world. So I wasn't counterintelligence. I was counterterrorism. Um, you know, counterintelligence was just that working intelligence operations strictly against foreign nations. Hmm. I did counterterrorism. Uh, so we were looking to, it was, this was fairly new for the FBI. Now they had done terrorism cases before and there were some stud terrorism investigators, but it wasn't a primary focus of the FBI, right? The FBI is criminal scene, goes, go take down the scene and now go find the bad guys. So we weren't adept at preventative stuff. So in 2003, we were still getting our feet under us. So I had requested to be on the squad that worked Central Asian terrorism and think. Right down your uh, alley. Yeah. The former Soviet republics, right? Mm -hmm. you know, think Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan. And then my squad also worked um, Pakistan, Afghanistan and and India of all places. And they, they you know, they have some groups as well. Um, so we were in my squad aside from the al-Qaeda squad, because there was a separate squad for al-Qaeda, we were by far the busiest squad. Um, and the groups that I worked, they they essentially were like the hitmen for al-Qaeda. I mean, al-Qaeda said, all right, let's do this bad stuff. Let's call it Uzbeks, because they're, they're crazy. You know, they'll do anything. So you are working a combination of, um, you're trying to find if you find overseas connections to a target in the city, that's a good thing, right? Now you've got a case. So that was, that's what you worked on. You worked on, I was, I loved uh, recruiting sources. So you work recruiting sources, people who are going to tell you who's who, 
And then you start the investigation into those people who are on the locals radar screen, and then you start making your case. So I was able to travel the world, work with intelligence agencies around the world. I worked very closely with the CIA, with the NYPD, um, and I did that for the better part of my career. So that it was all about prevention, okay, and then trying to make arrests. And it might sound simple, but sometimes the intelligence you get is not admissible in court. Mm. So, you, so you're, you, you know what I mean? You just, it's not illegal. Right. It's just not admissible, okay? So if you're working something to say, well, how did you get that information? That might not stand up to the letter of the law. And in this case, you, so you definitely could, want to have the letter of the law. Well, so right. and it's so, it's so it's two things. Again, and there's a difference. Standing up to the letter of the law and being illegal are two different things. In right. intelligence work, you're just trying to find the information, right? It doesn't matter if you're lying to somebody, you're buying it, whatever it is. Okay, you just want the information and you need to verify it and everything. But again, it's it's not it's not to the letter of the law. So you can't use that evidence that you collect to arrest somebody. But that's okay. That was the beauty of this whole thing, because fine, then let's use the intelligence we have and let's let the CIA roll this this person up. Let's let British MI5 roll this person up. Right. The intelligence agencies to get them and then use them. So you, you always try to go both ways. You always try to get that evidence that will stand up to the rule of law. But if it couldn't, that's okay. Then you pivoted and just went straight intelligence, get that information any we can. We'll buy, we'll buy it from the worst people we know, and then we'll verify it, and then we'll take those other tacks. Then we'll use the military. Then we'll use whoever else. So that was exciting. I loved it. I loved it. So um, you spent 13 years with mm -hmm. the FBI. Yeah. So how weird is it for you from seeing and discussing what we just did, you know, about 9-11, what led you to go to the FBI working for 13 years and now seeing individuals who were not even born at 9-11 going into the military and serving our country? It's, it's pretty wild when you think about that. It is. It is. As a matter of fact, I had a good friend, a friend I grew up with uh, who had a very distinguished career. Will Huff is his name. And, um, you know, his son came over. His son was in the area and he just graduated from West Point and he's going to fight the fight, you know, and the same fight that we started fighting, me and his dad. Mm -hmm. And I can only, you know, my kids are much younger, so they're not going to, they're not in that, hopefully not going to be in that position, my God. But it was, you know, I, I thought about my friend and, and I said, he, he's got to be proud, but he's also got to be a little scared because he knows what it's like and he knows what his son's getting into. Now, like any good warrior wannabe, he's worried that everything's going to end before he gets a chance to go out there and show his medal. And I'm sure his dad told him this and I told him too. I said, look, don't just do what you're assigned to. Don't wish for anything. Right. Okay. It'll happen if it happens. It's not something you need to be wishing for. Um, so, yeah. So during this time frame, though, we're speaking about leadership, uh, especially is when you also had kind of a difficult period after 13 years, you started seeing that this still wasn't for you, what you really wanted to do, where your passion really lie uh, was lying at that time frame. And not only that, but it sounds like you must have had some um, challenging leaders maybe along the way. Yeah. So I look. So this is not a 
And I always make this very clear, right? I'm not out here to take gratuitous shots at the FBI, even though these days they've they've earned it. Yeah. Um, because some of the best leaders I've ever met or worked with were in the FBI. But the problem with that is they were the outliers. The expectancy of great leadership in the SEAL teams was the expectancy. We, you, If you were not a great leader in the SEAL teams, you stood out like a sore thumb. If you were a good leader in the FBI, you stood out like a sore thumb, okay? Because generally speaking, the leadership in the leadership culture is bad. And I just... I just got tired of it, quite honestly. Hmm. And that's that's really just it. I, I, I worked for way more bad leaders than I did good leaders. I got tired of fighting to work cases, fighting bureaucracy unnecessarily, fighting misplaced and oversized egos, because I'm sure some of those people who I butted heads with would say, well, Errol, you, you're the biggest egomaniac I've ever seen. And I, I would say, well, no, there's a difference. I think that I'm right. I think my way is the right way because I have that confidence. But I always ask people, what do you think? What do you think about this? And if I've got somebody who I trust tells me I'd do it a different way, then I would do it a different way. That is no longer bad ego, right? That's actually humility. Mm. You should think that your way is the right way. You should think that you have the answer, right? right? That's good. And you should want to tell it to people. Here's what I think. But I always went to somebody else and said, here's what I'm going to do. What do you think? And more than once, they'd go, man, if you do that, you know, A, B, and C, you might want to rethink this plan. I'm like, huh, all right, I'll rethink that plan. So when I say misplaced and outsized, outsized ego uh, in the leadership from the FBI, it was people who just couldn't tolerate somebody else having a better idea or a different idea. And certainly never being willing or comfortable or confident within their own skin to say, wow, that's a really unique way you want to go about that. You have my support. Let me know how I can support you. But you have your plan. Go get it. Uh, it just wasn't it just wasn't the way it was typically done. Now, when it was done in the FBI, because I had a couple of great leaders who I worked for. Trust me when I tell you, Robert, you made magic. And that's where, so the FBI, in my opinion, it gets its reputation on the good side from those handful of leaders who just manage to hang in there, fight the bureaucracy, and then support the special agents who want to do great things. And then all of a sudden, great cases are made. And I've seen, and I've seen them. So again, it's not a gratuitous shot at the FBI, but they have, they have earned some of the scrutiny that they've, they've received lately. Um, again, I will say some of the best leaders and men and women I've, I've ever met worked in the FBI. It's just that that was not the overriding culture. And I got tired. I just got tired. And I said, well, I can either sit around and complain, which I'm not going to do. I can absorb and live with this bad leadership, which I'm not going to do. Or I can put my money where my mouth is and go out on my own and 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 kind of spread my message so that's what i decided to do and haven't looked back since that was uh the founding of leader 193 that was the founding of leader 193 that's so it. tell us about leading leader 193 so it's you know i'm a leadership consultant and um the it's funny because when i was going through this very frustrating period at the fbi my my brother-in-law was over i'll never forget it, it was mother's day and i was just venting you know, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't get out. I'm 13 years into this thing. I'm 40 something years old. And 
you know, I'm not going to go back to sales, beating the street. You know, what am I going to do? Be a mercenary? And he's staring at me with this blank look. And I finally go, what? He goes, you, you have no idea. He goes, Errol, I pay a guy with half your credentials a boatload of money just so I can talk to him a couple times a month about his leadership philosophy. And I'm like, that's a thing? Like, that exists? <laughs> he goes, uh, well, that unlocked me, right? Sure. Like, okay, so there's, wow, somebody might want to hear what I have to say. So what I had to do was, and this was the beautiful thing, I had to reach back, right? So, you know, this is why I talk very openly about the problems I faced as a young man at the Naval Academy, even as a young officer in the Navy, um, where did they come from? Mm -hmm. Why was I able to put together such a nice resume, but then just constantly almost screw it up every time and have to have somebody come in and go, hold on, hold on, Errol's a good guy. Let's get, you know what I mean? It just didn't make sense, right? Why can you do these great things on the one hand and then at the next turn do something stupid? And so I started to evaluate all that and I came up with there are about five things that are always present in any leadership decision and really anywhere in life. They will always be present and each one builds off the one before it. It's a process. Leadership is a process. And inside of each one of the elements of that process, there's an art because how you navigate that process is going to be just a little bit different for everybody, right? Uh, you know, Robert, you, you know, the first element of my process is emotional awareness and recognition, okay? The point I make is, Let's all agree that we need to have that emotional awareness and recognition because at a minimum, the science tells us emotions drive our actions and our actions are ultimately what define us as a leader. So let's, let's, let's all agree that we need to have that awareness, but the art inside of it is the emotions that you struggle with, the emotions that you deal with and the actions they drive are gonna be different than mine. Mm, yeah. And we need to figure out which ones they are and what they do to drive us you know, to work outside of our best interests. And that's kind of where my process started. And so I just said, all I want to do is tell people my story, introduce them to this process and this art. And then it turns out it's kind of backed by science in that afterwards I did some research on how the brain functions. And, it, you know, to my surprise, my leadership process mirrors the elements that the brain goes through to rewire itself for good behavioral change. You know, we can get into that now or, you know, whatever. But the point is, I just became then obsessed with sharing, you know. So how do I share? Well, the same way every other leadership consultant shares. At first, you you know, you, you make some speeches, right? You give some keynote addresses. Then you get some clients. And then I put together a video series, right? So I do one-on-one -on -one clients and now I do groups and teams. I do, you know, retreats for, you know, uh, companies, two, three, four-day retreats. You know, we're going to open up do our first open retreat in, in January of 2021. But that's it. That's how you get it, right? And that's how you spread the message. And that's, you just do a little bit of everything as a leadership consultant. We're starting to scale a little bit because I can't spend and nobody can spend five days a week on five calls a day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've yeah. got to, You've got to marshal your energy a little bit, um, but that's so. That's what I do. But it's all it's all anchored in my process, and most of that process comes from my time as the SEAL teams, all the good stuff, and then everything else sprinkled in that I did. You know, and that's it. It's funny that you mentioned about the reboot because uh, there was a long time ago, 
it's actually an episode I don't recall that uh, we had an author that really was about rebooting yourself and doing it frequently because it's so important for you to kind of reset, redefine, and you know, control halt delete kind of thing. Let's get it going. And for those who don't remember what control alt delete is back in the old days, <laughs> That's right. basically that was a reboot of your system. If all else fell, then your computer, you couldn't turn it off or anything, hit control alt delete. And so in this case here, we need to do that often in order to get back centered again, get back focused on what the new priorities, the new mission, new objectives are. And this could be whether you're in the military or not. I mean, as a, as a personal um, goal or as a, a personal redefining yourself and everything, um, you want to go through this kind of process. You, you want to understand where are you at at this moment? What are your goals now? And, and I think that's one of the things that you're talking about here. Well, it is. And, and there's, there's a lot to that because, you know, one of the big things is, oh, find your why. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to finding your why. I get it. It's a, it's a, it's a good philosophy, right? Simon Sinek's book, I think, right? why or whatever, whatever mm -hmm. it is. But my point is, let's be careful with that because your why is going to change there. Yeah. And, and there could be a big overarching why that will never change. That's fine. But your why from day to day, week to week, month to month may change. And, and, and you need to be aware of that and comfortable and at home with that. And the only way to do that is to start the element of this of, of my leadership process is you're going to know something's wrong. You're going to have an emotion and you're going to be doing something, cultural awareness and recognition. What you do is your culture, not the label you put on, right? So if you're aware of those two things, you might realize, whoa, I need to change up my why because I'm feeling a certain way and I'm doing something and I'm not comfortable with what I'm doing. So now I have to make a new decision. How do I want to behave? There's a behavior that's missing that's outside of my best self-interest. I'm realizing that I'm talking past people. I'm realizing that I'm being impatient. I'm realizing that I am moving from task to task to task. I'm, you're going to figure out a new behavior that you need to establish for yourself that will make you better at everything else. Your, your widget has nothing to do with it. It's the behavior. So again, that will change periodically. That will change from mood to mood, right? I might get off this, this show with you and go down, right? Be nice and high. We have a good conversation. Maybe have some impact. Okay. And then all of a sudden I go down and my three kids under seven who are now homeschooling, okay, <laughs> are tearing up the place. Okay. And now I've got to reestablish my why. My why is a dad and a husband. And my why right now is to get control of the situation so my wife doesn't go crazy. Right. It's, right. it's always can always be changed. So there could be career, it could be personal life, it could be just today, the moment, but it's a matter right. of being aware. It's the awareness, right? Yeah. And it's the awareness around how you feel and the awareness of what you are doing based on that feeling. Yeah. If you are aware of that, you're going to be okay because then you get to make targeted, conscious changes, right? You may decide, for example, um, I have this emotion, which is anger, and I am acting angrily. But I'm okay with that because I think right now acting angrily is in my best interest. That's okay. I'm never going to tell you not to act on your emotion. What I'm going to tell you is you have to act consciously on that emotion. Because if you're not acting consciously on it, then you're just acting randomly. Sure. And random action is random results. 
Okay, if you are acting consciously, now you have process. Mm -hmm. And when you have process, you can go back and determine where things went right and where things went wrong, i.e., I felt anger, I consciously decided to act on that anger, the result was disastrous, I can no longer trust that emotion. Next time that happens, let me try something else. Nobody says it's gonna be perfect, but welcome to leadership. It's right. perfect. So give me quickly the, the four other elements, because you yep. mentioned already emotional awareness and recognition. Yep, so it's emotional awareness, and, and it's a process, they all build on each other. Right. You have to exercise emotional awareness and recognition. Then you have to recognize cultural awareness and recognition. Oh, the things one. you do, mm -hmm. the things you, culture is made up of the things you do, not the labels you put on them. Mm -hmm. So you have an emotion, you have an action. Be aware of that emotion, be aware of that culture, the thing you do. Okay, now, once you are aware of what you do based on how you feel, you have to exercise guidelines for behavior. You have to establish now a behavior that is better suited for your needs based on what you've observed. Possibly a new behavior. Probably a new behavior yeah. and probably the opposite of what you're observing <laughs> that all of a sudden you realize you don't like. Right. Once again, it can be very fluid. It can be big picture. It can be always the same. It can change. Okay. But that's the first three. Okay. Those are behavioral elements. Those are awareness elements. But then the next one is, okay, in the end, you have to have results. So to get results as a leader, you need to plan. You need a planning process. So that's the next element, the planning process. So you have emotions to culture to identifying behavioral guidelines. And now we must plan to get what we want. All I did was take the planning process we used in the SEAL teams that you probably used in the Army, just kind of watered it down, manipulated it, made it applicable to everyday life. That's it. Right. Yep. I'm not. I didn't make it up. I stole it. And I <laughs> sure. bought it here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 there's there's no right. new ideas anyway, right? <laughs> that's you know? right. Yeah. So that's the planning process. And then the final element is just something we call the resistance, right? Everybody uses the resistance. But what do I mean by the resistance? If you do these things, you will have leadership success, right? And it's a, it's a guarantee. This is born in blood, and it is born in the blood that I saw – as a SEAL that I saw on the battlefield when I was attached to the 75th Ranger Regiment as an FBI agent, all the things I did in the FBI, everywhere. I promise you, this is not, this was not put in a sterile lab, right? I can tell you why each step of the way, yet people will resist these changes if you try to make them organizationally, whether it's a small team, okay, or whether it's a, a big organization. What's more, you will resist it within yourself mm -hmm. if you are working this process from an individual le level. Why? Okay. Or try to sabotage. The, yeah. That's right. And that's where the science comes in. Okay. Because we know scientifically, I just went out on the, uh, the elements of this process. We know the brain rewires. We have between 60 and 70,000 thoughts per day. 80 Jeez. to 90% of them are the same as the day before. Think of that. So that means ipso facto, they're going to be the same tomorrow as they were yesterday, right? Scary propositions. Yeah. That's right, especially when the next piece of evidence or uh, research says that for the majority of people, 70% of those thoughts and emotions are based in stress, anger, frustration, worthlessness, fear, anxiety, okay? So when we have those thoughts and emotions, the brain literally sends a chemical to our body, and now we become neurochemically addicted to those emotions. We may not even remember what got us so angry. 
All we know is we are addicted to the anger. We need to find anything in our environment to justify acting angrily. Make that emotion to worthlessness, anxiety, fear, right? So it's so that's the emotion part. Okay, so we talk about the resistance. So the second, the, the science tells us the second we recognize emotions that we've been thinking over and over again, the brain starts to rewire itself. It says, okay, hey, you're, sci- you're seeing a new emotion. Good. And then the second we exercise what's called metacognition, see cultural awareness and recognition, what am I doing? I'm aware of how I'm feeling and I'm aware of what I'm doing. Now the brain is further rewiring itself. And then you make a decision. I will now act with more patience, with more emotional courage, whatever it is, whatever behavior it is. Now the, be- now the brain is really paying attention and it's starting to rewire itself a little more. And then you make a plan. The situation is this. My mission is this. My actions will be this. My contingencies will be this. I will communicate in this way, right? The whole thing. Now your brain is starting to rewire itself. Sounds simple, but it's hard. Yeah. You are literally trying to rewire your brain. So the resistance is just that natural resistance to changing behavior. Yeah. So as a leader, if you are trying to put some of this stuff in place, new behaviors in place, new planning in place, and people are resisting you, your knowledge of, I'm rewiring a group of people. It's going to be hard. They're not going to want to do it, even though they know it's in their best interest. That's just that's just science. You can give yourself a little grace, a little patience, right, and work yourself through it. That's the resistance. Simple as that. That's the process. I say you follow these elements of the process in every aspect of your life, you're going to be okay. The art behind it is, once again, how you use the planning process. Let's all agree we need to have a planning process. How you use it, Robert, and how I use it might be a little different. That's your art. Mm -hmm. The behavioral guidelines that we realize we need to establish for our team, for my team, might be different for your team. That's okay, but let's all agree we need to establish those behavioral guidelines because you can't hold someone accountable if they don't know what they're supposed to be accountable to. And that starts with, behaviors and mission planning you can hold people accountable to those things and make it very clear that's so that's my process and that is my life's work in two minutes or less (laughs) yeah no that's great and and so i'm going to mention the name of the book here in just a minute and so people can go and find that read more about it and of course the follow you will get all that information out but i'm going to talk a little bit about the go plunge that you just end up having because it was a little uh i felt cold watching it on video uh, it was soothing, but at the same token, it was, uh, it's probably, you know, one of those things that I don't know that I could do. Maybe I could, uh, but tell, tell us about that because, uh, well, first off, I'll give you kind of a description. You had this, this kind of balcony area that you had all these tubs of water packed with ice. And for those people who work out a lot, you know, taking an ice bath is not a big thing. You know, I mean, you do it quite often to re- release the lactic acid and, and all of that kind of good stuff. But uh, when you're doing it more in a business setting to where you're really trying to calm your mind down and, and all of that, it's a little bit different. It is. It's it's called the Wim Hof method. Uh, Wim Hof is a, is a person and he he produced this method. Basically, Wim Hof is a guy who um, he climbed Mount Everest in a pair of uh, shorts. He stayed in a tub of ice for two hours without his core body temperature changing. He was able to fight off uh, an endotoxin that was injected him in a scientific experiment just by use of his breath and his mind, right? So basically what he's done is he has 
uh, allowed scientists to start rewriting science books based on the fact that he's proven we have the ability to control our autonomic nervous system. Now, we could go on for hours about that. The point is, I do Wim Hof Method. I'm a certified instructor. I use it as an intellectual tool for my leadership practice, right? How do you practice emotional awareness and recognition, right? How do you practice cultural awareness and recognition? Well, here's the first thing. If you're sitting there standing in front of an ice bath about to get in, I can promise you one thing, you're gonna have an emotion. Yeah. And if you are now, your intention going into that ice bath is concentrate on my emotion, what is it? You are now practicing a, a very important element of leadership. Now what you saw was the go life is a, um, they do nootropics, right? So they do they do the pills full of natural elements that allow you to clear your brain and focus. All good stuff. They asked me to come in and just do a, a Wim Hof seminar uh, as a promotional event. Mm -hmm. So that's what you saw. So it's the go life. I'll give them a good plug since you bought it in. But so that's what we did. And um, you know, we we I gave him the lecture. We gave him the breathing. And then at the end. Everybody gets into the ice bath, and it's not this, as you saw, it's not this cr crazy cold plunge, like, woo! Yeah, yeah. Everybody's, everybody's getting in methodically. It's mellowed out. Emotions, You're speaking calmly are. to them, yeah. That's right. And they are now in 32-degree water, and they are calm, and they are in control of their breathing, right? It's doing all sorts of stuff for us physiologically. But my focus in a lot of these things is what's it doing to you mentally and emotionally? It is, uh, it is letting you realize that you have control of your emotions, your breath, and your actions in the worst of circumstances, in the chaos, right? The cold is just representative of the noise in our lives. And if you can do that for yourself, you can walk out of there and you can go back to work with that coworker that you hate. And you don't have to get all bent out of shape. You can survive traffic. You can survive this thing we're going through as a nation where we're locked down and we can't even go out and earn a living. You can survive it because you're in control of your emotions and how you're acting on it, not the noise around you. So that's that's a little bit about the Wim Hof method, how I employ it personally, and then thank you what that event was for the Go Life. And, and we did that in New York City uh, at the top on a rooftop. It was awesome. Yeah. So that's I, that's that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. I definitely want to um, get back into that at some time frame because I think it'll be helpful to um, have people understand more about that and how they can, you know, we may have to have you back on again, brother, in, in order to just talk about that in and of itself, you know, because I think that could be an episode for sure. Well, uh, I can, and if I can interrupt real quick, yeah. I know we're running against it because what it does also is it is now it's it's proven to, as you reset your nervous system, what does that do? That gets rid of the inflammation. Inflammation is caused by stress. So think about our brothers and sisters coming back with PTSD. Oh, yeah. And PTSD is a constant stressful thought, thinking the same thought over and over again. Inflammation builds up in our system, and that is the cause of every lifestyle disease we have, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, uh, Parkinson's, and depression. And what this method is showing scientifically to reset our nervous system, rid our body of the inflammation and then get control of those emotions that are killing us. So yes, I would love to come back on and talk about how this method is doing that for, for people. So yeah. yeah, that would be great. You know. Yeah, we'll have to dive into that. So let's get into the book. The uh, book, if anybody's looking for it, of course, the company is Leader 193. Um, his book is Process, Art, and Science of Leadership. And um, 
So anyway, I guess you can find that on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, any of the major bookstores, or it's 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 Amazon is where it's exclusively sold. Uh, so you can go to Amazon, look up the Process, Art, and Science of Leadership by Earl Dobler. Uh, go to my website, Leader One Nine Three. We've got a tab there for the book as well. You can get an autograph cop- copy there, right? Yeah. Um, so the whole thing. So yeah, anywhere to find me is Leader One Nine Three. My website, Instagram, Facebook, all the social media stuff, yeah. I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, us talking about this. I think there's so much that um, people can benefit from this. And, of course, if you want to dive more into the five elements that you described earlier, it's going to be all within the book. You can read more about that within that. I encourage every leader out there to go out there and pick up a copy of that. And, uh, of course, contact you if you're looking for uh, some additional leadership seminars or events or something of that nature to you know there's never enough of that out there uh, that I think especially within the private sector for leaders to be able to take advantage of it's better than these ropes courses and everything else that we always see that are overused um, too much (laughs) yeah so you know this is a a different opportunity Um, you know I hope they seek out you your website and uh, you know start learning more about that but once again thank you for coming on the mentors military podcast brother I really appreciate it Thanks for having me, Robert. Let's hope we added some value to somebody listening. Oh, I'm sure we did. (laughs) Good. Take care now. (laughs)